I've done a lot of great things in my career. I have clients all over the world. I speak at conferences, and I even have my own podcast. But I'm here to tell you that I have never had a more important conversation than the one I'm having today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by ClearRisk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today we kick off the most important series to date on the Resilient Journey as we talk about diversity. My guest today is Vince Davis. Vince has a storied career in emergency management, including time spent with FEMA, Homeland Security, and even some work in the private sector. Vince wrote an outstanding article last year about combating racism in emergency management. I'm going to talk to him about that article today and get Vince to expand on certain points along the way. We kick off this very important two-part conversation with Vince Davis right after we hear from my friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Vince, welcome to The Resilient Journey. I am beyond honored to have you here. And I have to tell you, I have the utmost respect for you. You and I first met at a conference that we both spoke at, and I was impressed with you right off the bat. You're a man of faith. You have an incredibly strong love of family. You have such a storied background, like 23 years in the Air Force. So, man, thank you so much for your service, not just then, but since then, too. But tell the listeners a little bit about your experience in emergency management. Thank you, Mark. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I feel very honored and privileged to be a part of this great podcast that you that you are uh, putting together. And uh, I, I do want to say, you know, uh, again, from the time we met, I was also very impressed with your your not only your intellect but your passion for what we're doing. So, uh, so thank you for having me. First of all. Um, so I started off my journey in emergency management by really a surreptitious means. Um, having spent uh, the bulk of my working career in telecommunications, I worked for AT&T for 18 years. And then I worked for another set of companies for about 10 years. Um, I had no idea or no thought, no inkling that, that as a second career, almost, I would actually get into emergency management. Uh, I spent... Uh, uh, four years in the uh, Air Force active duty, I was an air traffic controller, and then another 19 years in the Air and Army National Guard in Illinois as a public information officer. Mm. Uh, so I had the privilege of learning public yeah. information and crisis management and crisis media yeah. <laughs> from yeah. the ground up. Uh, yeah. I was trained at the Defense Department, Public Affairs School, et cetera. And I wound up parlaying that into a position at FEMA as external affairs officer. And in that regard, I feel very, very fortunate. And I tell young people coming into this profession, don't try to follow anything that I did because luck is not a strategy. Uh, I got to work at FEMA at the time that Homeland Security was just being formed. I, I was a person who had the privilege of being there at the time, the National Response Framework and NIMS and ICS and all those things were being created. So it was a very special time to be at at FEMA and in the federal government. 
Now, I know that after FEMA, you worked for Homeland Security and you did some other public sector work. But talk about how you ended up uh, in the in the private sector. Uh, after that, I was looking around and wound up in the private sector at Walgreens Corporation, uh, which at the time had been ordered by their board of directors to create a disaster framework, which they did not have. They had no no plans or or. Uh, infrastructure around responding to disasters for their 8,600 stores. I remember from a previous conversation with you that it was shortly after you started there that uh, all the incidents in Ferguson, Missouri went down and you had a Walgreens right there in Ferguson, right? No question about it. Uh, Not only uh, did we have a a Walgreens within Ferguson, there's actually a Walgreens within about five miles of 78% of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. So we got to deal with uh, things like the G8 Summit in Chicago, where literally the Walgreens flagship store was across the street from the major uh, influx of uh, protesters during the G8 Summit. So you're right. Ferguson, Missouri was, was absolutely a part of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump off of that. That's a good jumping off point to kind of get to what we're talking about today, because we're spending some time talking about diversity, specifically in our industry, but I want to start with some context. Uh, I opened, uh, mentioned in the opening that I'm going to be spending a lot of time today quoting an article you published last year on LinkedIn. Um, It was written right at the height of all of the events around George Floyd. And you talk about how the spring of last year, the spring of 2020, was very reminiscent to the civil rights movement of the late 1960s. And you use a phrase in here, I really like it a lot. You, you talk about the daily struggles of living Black in America. And I'm going to quote you here. You said, we do it mostly in silence because talking about race makes so many of our white counterparts defensive, queasy, and uncomfortable. Uh, the truth is Black people don't want or need your sympathy for the injustices of the past or even the present. What we're asking for is something we can't do for ourselves. Otherwise, it would have been done by now. I love that. We need fairness, equity, and justice now. And I know you have said before that diversity is a fact and equity is a choice. And I think that kind of ties that together. Man, that's a powerful statement. Well, uh, you know, Mark, I, 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 a lot of where I was coming from was actually born when I did that article of a uh, of an all hands meeting that we had when I got here to feeding America, uh, right at the George Floyd incident, as a lot of companies and organizations did, our CEO, uh, called the all hands meeting of all of our employees at the national office and just said, everybody take this time to breathe a little bit and just talk about how you're feeling. Having just started at feeding America at that time, I was not going to say anything. I had no intention of saying a word. Right. There, there were people that have been at this organization a hell of a lot longer than the three months I'd been there. Right. And, I, and I just, my intention was not to say anything. Uh, however, uh, in the absence or the vacuum of people who were just speechless, really, about what they had seen and what had occurred, I did speak up and, and I spoke from the heart. And what I said was essentially this. I said that after, you know, growing up during the apex of the civil, the modern civil rights movement, I was a sophomore in high school when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated Uh, and seeing literally America in flames uh, over the the, the anger and the frustration, not over the killing of Martin Luther King, but over the 
all the heaping injustices that had happened up to that point, I said, I'm tired. I'm literally tired. I can't tell you how tired I am. Uh, I never thought in a million years, you could have never told me as a 16 year old that 50 plus years later that I would be having these same conversations with my grandsons and my granddaughters about race. You never could have told me that. And so I basically said, I'm tired. I'm tired of talking about race and I'm tired of thinking about race and I'm tired of dealing with uh, racial injustice in ways that only a person of color who has had to deal with it can understand. Uh, what I did say in that meeting was that when I, when you back out of your driveway, if you are a white person in America, your name is Bob or Sue or Jane or, or, or John or whatever, you get to be that person. When I back out of my driveway, I'm black. Wow. And what that means is I have to deal with all of the things that are external to me that influence how I'm treated, how I'm approached, and what my experiences may be from the time I leave my driveway until the time I return. You've had to have conversations with your children, and I'm sure with your grandchildren that I've never had to have, about you know how to how to respond if you're approached by a police officer or something like that. And I'm not that's not where I wanted to go with the podcast, but it's it's a reality. And if that just made somebody uncomfortable. Well, sorry for for that, but the, I mean, the reality is you've had to have conversations with your family that I've never had to have. Well, and not only that, Mark, but it's a commonplace thing with black people. It's not just me, Vince Davis. Look, uh, people look at me and I've had folks say to me over the years, Mark, Vince, look at you. You've been successful in your, 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 your professional life. You, you're respected by people. You, you haven't done too bad. So what is all this talk about race? And I said, uh, but everything that I may or may not have accomplished as an individual uh, was done in the backdrop of still having to deal with that extra thing yeah. that's always been out there. And that's being black in America. And, and I said that uh, not to make people feel badly, but to make people understand that we have to we have to decisively turn a corner here on these issues of race. And uh, and not only that, as a as a as a black person, as a person of color, I don't pretend to be anything more than privileged at this point to even be able to talk about these issues. And when I say privileged, you say in what way? Well, because I'm at the end of my career. Uh, I'm 67 years old. I've got way more behind me than I do in front of me. I feel very very privileged to be still in this business and and to be respected and, and regarded uh, as a as a uh, credible source in this business. But by the same token, the reality is some of the things that I, that I say and that I have said and that I have written uh, cannot be said or written by Black people even today because they would face repercussions that I won't face. That's a, a, another good jumping off point. You're doing a great job in setting me up for my next question, Vince. Keep it up. It's great. Um, so in the context of emergency management, major issues, the, you know, the, the context that we set early on, just talking about racism in general, doesn't stop in the professional world. And so you said in the article, now this goes back a year, so I'll ask if you have any updates, but 92% of emergency management directors are white, 68% are male. Let me say that the other way, eight percent of emergency management directors are not white 
49 out of the 50 state emergency management directors are white. That's 98% if you're doing the math at home. First of all, I mean, it's been a year. Have you seen any changes in that at all? And can you explain the problem here? Well, it's, it's twofold. Uh, one of the things I want to say about those statistics is that they're not only telling about the numbers, but it's telling because uh, a lot of it had to do with where emergency management evolved from. Emergency management evolved out of the fire service, which was traditionally a very white male, uh, you know, feel. So it's not, that's not unusual. The fact that there aren't, you know, uh, very many people of color in in positions uh, in emergency management. What's unusual to me and what I cited in my article was that I had, when I wrote that article, I'd been in the emergency management field for over 20 years Mm -hmm. and I still knew most, if not all of the black people who were in emergency management positions by name. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that should not be 20 years into a career that, and, and not because I make it my business to know who they are, but because there are so few of us. Right. <laughs> and so, okay. you know, that was, a, that was a, cha- that was, that was awfully challenging to me, but what really sent me over the edge is that the decisions that are being made, are not being made out of, to me, a malicious or a vicious necessarily um, intent uh, of white people to discriminate. The institutionalization of racism is so embedded in everything that we do as a society Mm -hmm. that we don't even know what's racist or what's discriminatory because we are so used to things being uh, a certain way. We have we just we just take it for granted that that's kind of just how it is. And and that's the part that I said has to change. And that's what keeps us uh, from 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 uh, from changing that dichotomy. Now, what's really important about all that is not the numbers. It's the idea that the people at the table making decisions are people who come from a certain place, uh, have a have certain values, live in a certain way but are not necessarily representative of the people they're supposed to be serving. And when you're trying to serve people, uh, the fact that you are not representative of their values, of their core values and of their approach uh, is very, can be very detrimental because you simply don't understand why they do certain things or why things work a certain way. And, And then that in turn dictates policy, which then dictates outcomes which, which starts the whole cycle of why we look at emergency management and say, look, uh, the, at the NEMA conference a couple of years ago, and I quoted this, I believe, in the article, of the 50 state emergency managers, they all gave statements about what they plan to do with their emergency management communities within the state. They all gave little couple paragraph statements about what their intent was. What was disturbing to me was that not one of them, not a single one of them said anything <laughs> in their platform of all the things that they intended to do to improve emergency management and improve preparedness in their state said anything about diversity, nothing. Wow. Uh, There was not a single one who said, and I also plan to be more deliberate about diversifying the staff because we need to address some of the uh, issues and some of the, the problems that we have with administering programs and with outcomes for people of color and for, for marginalized communities. That was what bothered me about it. Not the fact that they weren't uh, 
black or brown or otherwise, but the fact that they didn't even think it was an issue at all. One of the things you suggest we should do is to have an honest self-dialogue to examine our own views about race. So what are some things we should be asking ourselves or looking at as we reflect about our own racial biases? Well, we should first be asking ourselves or, or at least uh, admitting to ourselves that there is a problem. And, and, and one of the most difficult parts of this discussion is getting to the point where, where, where two sides of an issue, in this case, the issue of race, mm. are even in agreement or acknowledgement that there is a problem. Uh, look, I've talked to some of my white colleagues who, frankly, are people that I have a great deal of respect for. They're very intelligent people. They're very highly educated people who simply do not believe that there is a problem. They just don't see that this is a problem. Yeah, well, we, we acknowledge that there may be some problems, but it's not really quite as horrible as you say it is. So, so before we can even begin the discussion, we have to get past the issue of uh, denial. And you know, I said in a recent article that I wrote, uh, which I, I meant to be very uh, intentionally snarky, was don't talk to me about race unless you've had the following things happen to you. Yeah. And then I listed a litany of 15 or 20 things that have happened to me as a black person yeah. over my lifetime, most of which are very personal, and most of which, frankly, until I wrote that article, people didn't even know about. They had no idea. Uh-huh. Have you, you ever had people- a gun held to your head by a law enforcement officer? Have you ever been had to sue an employer for discrimination? Uh-huh. Have you yeah. have you ever had this experience happen to you? And I did that not to be snarky or, or sarcastic, but to get people to understand that we need to stop talking at black people about race. And, and, and as white people, folks need to be listening to people like me, because most black people, if you talk to them and they say, hey, we're going to have an honest conversation about race, you know what they say? Mm. Oh, no, I don't know how honest I can be, because uh, the minute somebody tells me how I should feel about this, that's when I'm going to shut down. Uh, I'm, I'm going to challenge anybody who tells me how I should feel about about race and about racial discrimination, because guess what? Uh, again, until you until you've walked in those shoes, you know, uh, the comedian Chris Rock told a joke some years ago that was very prophetic. He said, uh, uh, I think it was in response to some issue that was going on or whatever. But he said, you know, if we want to be honest about race, he said, there's not a white person in this country that would want to be me. And I'm rich. <laughs> yeah. So so right. so when you start talking honest dialogue, we have to get past the idea that there isn't a problem. And so many white people don't see this as being a problem. They see it as being some aberration or something that's being uh, stirred up uh and, and, and uh, uh, antagonized by, by outsiders who, who want to just keep, you know, controversy going. They can, they can think of a thousand reasons why race isn't an issue. And some of, the, some of the nicest people I know are Black people. And, you know, and, 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 uh, any excuse is possible to keep from entering that dialogue that says, you know what, we got a problem here. <laughs> and we, we agree first that we have a problem. <laughs> If somebody says to you, some of my best friends are black, isn't that in and of itself a bit racist? 
Absolutely. And it's not only a racist, it's a microaggression that's very commonplace. I can't tell you how many times. And look, these are people that are my friends. I don't hate my friends because they are part of the problem. They are victims just like I am. They are victims of being uh, part of this this society that, again, has this 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 uh, uh, fantasy world that we've lived in for years about race. And, And the fantasy world says if we don't talk about it, then maybe it won't be true. Right. Uh, that that we should be, you know, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you the times that people have tried to hold me up or others up as some example of see, there isn't a race problem because <laughs> this person or this person or this person has accomplished this, this or this. Therefore, there's not a, it's not really a problem. It's just, you know, the fact that those other folks who are screaming haven't just haven't worked hard enough or haven't, <laughs> you know, done the right things. Uh, and therefore, they're looking for somebody to blame. Uh, you know, I grew up in public housing in, on the south side of Chicago. My parents were no different than any of the other parents who lived in public housing at that time. Uh, they, public housing was built and supposed to be a stepping stone to home ownership for Black people and for veterans coming out of World War II in Korea. Hmm. But because we were Black, it didn't turn out to be that stepping stone for a lot of people. My parents caught a break. I got out when I was seven years old and got raised in the suburbs in a middle-class neighborhood with good schools. But guess what? 95% of the people that I grew up with did not catch a break. And therefore it changed the dichotomy and the direction, not of their life, Mark, but of a life for generations. You know, I got five kids. My kids have, you know, my daughters have eight college degrees between them, two Ivy leagues. That doesn't happen if I'm not raised in the suburbs. That doesn't happen if I'm not going to good schools. That doesn't happen if I don't have an opportunity to get good jobs uh, that allow me to do certain things. So this is not a matter of who wanted it bad enough or who worked hard enough for it. It's a matter of the system uh, is set up so that failure is a likelihood. If we're going to accept that privilege exists and we have to, you said it earlier, you're privileged. Now, I'm going to try to ask this or ask this question appropriately, and I don't feel like I'm going to do a very good job of it. But what you're describing here is it's a multi-generational impact. Because your family was fortunate enough. Sorry, I don't, you know, I'm for lack of a better word, lucky. Yeah. yeah. Luck is not a strategy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, fortunate enough to to get into a middle class setting that enabled you to be successful, which then enabled your children and now your grandchildren to be successful. You can't tell me privilege isn't a real thing, right? Exactly. And that's privilege. And the privilege was in spite of my being black, not because of it. And the playing field was not level, but we fortunately, we were fortunate and very lucky, blessed, whatever you want to call it, yeah. to catch that to catch that break that changed the direction, uh, the trajectory of our entire family. It changed the entire trajectory. Look, my brother, ninety eight percent of my, my oldest brother's class, high school class, went to Vietnam. Hmm. He was among the two percent that got to go to college. He was on a two S deferment, so it changed everything. And and again, I say that, and I say privilege because privilege is privilege. 
and, and I feel privileged to have been one of that small group, but I am by no means think I'm special. And my parents made sure that we understood clearly throughout our lives. That's why we as a family have all dedicated in some fashion our lives to a life of service because we realized how privileged we were to be in a position to accomplish certain things that other people had no chance of accomplishing, zero. Man, if more people had that attitude, what a world this would be. All right, I'm going to go to the next thing here. Uh, you, You say, you talk about why phrases like disasters don't discriminate really, really send the wrong message. Elaborate on that. Yeah. So a few years ago, FEMA came out with this uh, um, PSA that said disasters don't discriminate. And their intent was not to say that there wasn't any racial discrimination or anything otherwise. Their intent was to say that disasters can happen indiscriminately to anybody. And so it's good to be prepared. So their intent was was good, but their delivery was disastrous, if you will. Sure. Uh, uh, so, so immediately, uh, you know, I, I, I thought to my, my, my book, Lost and Turned Out, which I wrote back in 2012, that talked about uh, how, how uh, uh, marginalized communities, uh, underserved communities, underserved populations are discriminated against routinely in disasters, and how because of that, they have the worst outcomes. And so when I see phrases like disasters don't discriminate, what it did for some people, white people, for unfortunately, who are in this industry, is reinforce that belief that there isn't a problem. And if you think, okay, so we could say it this way, disasters might not discriminate, but disaster response certainly does. And if you don't think so, I got, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people in the New Orleans area you could probably talk to to get... You know, a, a real life point of view. And then this next one goes right to it. You say it's time to acknowledge that emergency management can't claim that they have no role in the socioeconomic disparities of disasters. It's it's tied to what you just talked about. It's all tied together, Mark. And 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 look, this was an epiphany for me. When I was writing my book, when I was getting ready to publish my book back in 2012, I was at a Red Cross conference and a lady walked up to me by the name of uh uh, Fennell Doremus, and she worked for a uh, independent filmmaker who was doing a, 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 a um, documentary called Cooked. And it was the story of the 1995 heat wave in Chicago in which 715 or so African-American, mostly African-American, mostly poor people died within a week in Chicago due to an excessive heat wave. Wow. And so she was doing a documentary. She asked me if she could film my, my, my pre- preparation for my book launch. She was following me around with the camera and stuff. Okay, sure. Fine. You know, all, all publicity, all free publicity is good publicity. Right. But uh, anyway, the long and short of it is she and I got into some very deep discussions about, he said, Vince, well, isn't, isn't poverty a disaster? Shouldn't poverty be treated like, shouldn't homelessness Shouldn't food insecurity be treated like a tornado or a hurricane or a flood? Shouldn't we mobilize resources to combat this stuff the way we do a natural disaster? And I went, nah, nah, you don't understand. These are two different things. You're mixing apples and grapefruits. You're confused. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? I was the one who was confused. Mm. Uh, So we had some very spirited discussions over the years. And several years later, when the light went off for me, (laughs) I I remember going back and contacting her and saying, you know what? 
you remember those discussions we had where I, I gave you some very convincing arguments as to why what you were saying was not true? Well, guess what? I was completely wrong. It's all true and, and it's all tied together. We as emergency management, what I was saying there, Mark, is we tried to separate ourselves from the societal problems that cause us not to be what we need to be. We tried to say that has nothing to do with us. We're not involved in poverty. We're not involved in uh, uh, homelessness. We're not involved in food insecurity. We're just out here trying to help people in disasters. Well, hell, the people you're trying to help are involved in poverty <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, food insecurity and homelessness. So how are you going to help them if you won't even acknowledge that what they're dealing with before? General Honore said it. Uh, at a summit that he spoke at our summit, Red, our uh, um, Chicago State Summit in 2014 here in Chicago, he said, uh, people's, the way people, uh, the outcomes of, outcome of people in disasters is directly tied to what they were doing before the disaster. Mm -hmm. If you were poor before the disaster, you're not going to be middle class during the disaster or after the disaster. If you were food insecure before the disaster, you're going to be more food insecure after the disaster. So we can't separate. We can no longer separate. And that's what I was saying when I wrote that is that we can no longer say that's not our problem. We just deal with disasters. You might remember this better than me. I know somebody said it, but I don't recall who, and I'm not going to get the quote even right. So I'll just paraphrase right off the bat. But it was an appalling statement talking about the people dealing with the, the conditions that they were in temporary housing or temporary locations after Katrina. And someone made the comment along the lines of, well, look at what they were living in before. This isn't any worse. <laughs> right. There were, there, there, were there are degrees of worse. So yeah, you know, they're actually better off in these trailers yeah. with formaldehyde than they were in the substandard housing they were living yeah. in yesterday. So, so yeah, so uh, there's a lot of tone deafness in our industry still about Mm -hmm. uh, the causes of, of, of the underserved populations being in the position they are. And frankly, the idea that these are the folks who need to be the most prepared yet are the least prepared. And the fact that the, the, the honest to God truth is until we deal with that, nothing else we do is going to really matter. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for now, but I promise we'll keep this important conversation going in our next episode. Thanks to Vince Davis for having such an in-depth conversation about race and diversity. And trust me, it gets even better. A special thanks as always to Clear Risk for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. The conversation on diversity continues with Vince again next week when we'll talk about calling out our colleagues when they display racist attitudes and what we can do to include equity, diversity, and inclusion in everything we do. It's a great conversation, so join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.